so we would have people that came to the markets and then would go back to wherever they live and start looking for our products in their natural food stores in Maryland, say, and they couldn't find us. So then they'd email us and say, Hey, I live in Maryland. I'm really love, you know, I was in Asheville. I love your product. Like, do you sell anywhere? So we would be Googling like natural food stores in Baltimore, Maryland, and then just cold call people and say, Hey, we've got customers in your area asking for our product. And before we knew it, we're like FedExing boxes across the country because we didn't have a distribution network set up. This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven brand leaders who not only believe in better, but actively pursue it. That's better products, better brands, and better leadership for a better world. You can join our online community right now, where we're going further, faster together at community.evolvecpg.com. Join us. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, founder and creative director of Modern Species, a sustainable brand design agency helping better brands grow and scale their impact. On this episode, we're speaking with Sadra Shadell, co-founder and CEO of No Evil Foods, about the struggles of scaling manufacturing, running out of money, fumbling a layoff, dealing with backlash, and so much more. Hi, I'm Sadra Shadell. I'm CEO and co-founder of No Evil Foods. We are a plant-based meat company that's sold nationwide in retailers like Whole Foods and Sprouts, and we focus on clean, recognizable ingredients. Awesome. Thanks for coming on the show, Sadra. I'm super excited to chat with you, learn more about your products, your new fun packaging, and your new look. And I know some of the growth pains that you've been going through. And I just love sharing these stories with other founders, other entrepreneurs, other marketers, other other people in the space so that we can all learn from each other and grow. So really excited for this conversation. Thanks for carving out some time. Thanks so much for having me. And congrats on that new CEO title as well. That's that's always fun. I know you were the chief creative officer for a while, but you know you have been a co-founder of the business the whole time. So it's not a wholly new role, as you were mentioning, but it's um, it is a shift in title, which changes some of the responsibilities. And I know that as a entrepreneur, that's one of my favorite things about running a business is that it's never boring because you're always like taking on a new challenge, wearing a different hat, and so on and so forth. So congrats on that. Absolutely, thank you. All right. So um, first off, just curious, you know, a little bit of background information to talk about how the No Evil kind of got started in the first place. And I, I think part of your founding story is just about kind of unplugging from the food system. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, the whole journey. And I think the, the story of most entrepreneurs is pretty nonlinear. Um, ours certainly was. I co-founded the company with Mike Woliansky, who's our chief operating officer and previous CEO, as well as my life partner. And so we share the company together. We share a couple of small children together. And we have shared this journey together from uh, really the early inception of the business before it was even a business when it was just recipes in our basement kitchen in upstate New York. And I think what really drove us was was becoming more engaged and tapped into our food and how it was made and what it was derived from, um, how it impacted our health, how it impacted the health of the planet, the animal 
aspect to it, the animal welfare aspect. I think that was all already, that was the one box that we were looking for previous to starting to develop these these recipes for ourselves. I was raised a vegetarian, I'm, I'm vegan now. And so for many, many years, having that one box of not having animal ingredients was sort of enough. That was the, the baseline for the products I was eating and purchasing. But several years before, a few years before we really started developing these recipes, we were living in Philadelphia. And we had both sort of simultaneously, but apart, gone on our own food journeys and started to really um, explore different aspects of how we were eating and why. And for Mike, he was very health driven. For me, it was more environmental driven. And we started really discovering what that meant for us as individuals. That led me on a seven or eight month adventure in South America to test the waters of organic and sustainable agriculture. And for him, it led him to a tour bus of uh, Billy Squire, the old 80s rock star musician. And he was not yet vegetarian. He was eating a lot of really heavily processed food that the, you know, the band was served at different venues, a lot of fried chicken, a lot of barbecue. And he was realizing that he didn't feel all that great eating that food. And so inspired by my vegetarian example, he's like, I'm just going to test this out for two weeks and see kind of how it makes me feel. And it turned out that that two-week trial was really impactful on his overall kind of state of being. He felt lighter, he felt more energy. And so it stuck as a vegetarian lifestyle for him for a number of years. Meanwhile, I'm in South America really trying to understand you know, deeper uh, the system of food manufacturing by doing it myself um, in different settings, understanding sort of the global food system in a different way than I had in the past. When we both returned from these journeys, we were in Philadelphia, we had no apartment anymore. And so we said, what are we going to do? And we decided that we wanted to kind of opt out of the life that we were living for a number of reasons. And that led us to move to upstate New York, where I grew up outside of Syracuse, New York, really small town, dirt road, And I grew up in sort of a a self-sufficient lifestyle. I was homeschooled. I was vegetarian. It was a very kind of little house on the prairie. And so we went back to that lifestyle and uh, utilized- Back to the roots, literally. Back to the roots. Utilized the old garden space that my parents had fed us on growing up. And we wanted to understand- our food. This is a very long-winded story, but I'm getting there, I promise. <laughs> so we started really, really, really opting out and kind of going off grid. And we're like, you know, if we want maple syrup, we're going to tap those maple trees and we're going to boil it down and we're going to make syrup. If we want pasta, we're not going to go buy the barilla from the store. We're making a pasta night and like making a thing of it. And so we were really trying to make as much for ourselves as possible and buy as little for ourselves as possible down to like deodorant, toothpaste, like everything we were really trying to minimize. And And we were still buying our plant-based proteins in the grocery store. And without question, because again, they were that one box. We're like, great, not made from meat, I'm sold. But when we started flipping that over, and again, this is like, you know, back in the day a little bit, we don't have the options that we have now. We have these products that are heavily processed and very vaguely resembling the plants that they are supposed to be based on. And furthermore, they were really limited in their, you know, their functionality from a taste and a texture and a usage standpoint. I was such a passionate food person at this point in my life. And I loved the experience of preparing and connecting and sharing food with people. And the plant-based products that were available to me really limited my ability to do that. And I felt restricted. And that's one of the things that I think is hardest for me is when I feel restricted in a choice or in something that I want to do. And like, there's a wall to doing it. That's a, that's a big motivator for me. And so that restriction drove me to start making products, plant meats from scratch. And so we're living in this country 
uh, dirt road environment, not a lot of resources around us. So we went to the co-op where lots of people go when they're looking for ingredients like this, bought, you know, pantry staple ingredients and started toying around in our home kitchen and really wasn't looking to make a product at that point, really just looking to make, you know, I was raised vegetarian, but my family at that point no longer was. And so we see these divisions at the dinner table where, you know, I'm the lone vegetarian, my family's eating meat now, they're preparing a separate meal for me, or I'm preparing a separate meal for them. And I was like, this, I want to bring like, where's the togetherness? Like we, our family is a family that connects around food. And yet, because the options that make everyone happy don't exist, we're existing together at the table, but separate. And I really wanted to unite and unify at the, at the table and use food as, as the tool to do that. And so we needed a better plant meat, <laughs> something that like my meat eating family and my three meat eating brothers aren't going to show up at the table and be like, oh, we got to eat Sadra's vegan nice. food. Like we had to make something that was better. Challenge and accepted. Challenge accepted. <laughs> and we had to make it with, you know, with the taste and the texture that these people that were looking for that meat experience wanted, but we didn't want to compromise on the, on the health and sustainability aspects. And so we were tinkering and we were, you know, just testing these products on meat eating friends and family and really dialing them in based on their feedback. And then a couple years later, found ourselves in North Carolina. We were still on that self-sufficiency journey chasing the sun, you know, looking for the longer growing seasons, working in food service. I was uh, bartending. Mike was a server in a restaurant. And we looked at each other one day and we said, what do we want to do like longer term? This is great. We can work four days a week. We can travel on the weekends. We can have our CSA that we're growing and selling to our community. But like, is that what we want for us? And we said that we thought that we had an opportunity to impact our community in a broader way. And so we decided like, we're just going to take these products to farmers markets and see what happens. We gave ourselves six months to sort of build that plan, get all the proper certifications um, and licenses in place, find a community kitchen that we could rent by the hour in our local community, sign up for that first farmers market. And we showed up in April, 2014 with this big ass cooler of plant meat that we dragged in. We decked out our farmer's market booth like tent with, you know, these hand sewn plush hams and T-bone steaks <laughs> and made like this big spectacle about this, you know, this butcher shop <laughs> and hung up this huge sign that says no evil foods. And we're, you know, in the barbecue belt of North Carolina and the farmer's market shoppers are walking by and it stopped them dead in their tracks. And they're like, what in the world is this? Um, and we we created a scene. And for better or worse, we really um, drew a lot of attention. We sold out that first day. We continued to sell out week after week. And then due to kind of consumer demand and the shoppers of the farmers market markets looking for us throughout the week, we started to get requests into us um, from local grocery stores, independent grocery stores, uh, co-ops. And then within about eight months, we were locally available at Whole Foods. And so that was kind of the early stages. I mean, we didn't have a UPC on our packaging then. Um, our, our packaging was brown butcher paper with a black and white sticker like on the front and the back of it um, that we hand wrapped at the farmer's market table because we didn't have a color printer. So like we were like, all right, we'll just make it black and white, like very utilitarian, very basic just to get the product out there because that's what we thought was most important. And that is important. I think as a new business testing the waters, trying to figure things out, being as scrappy and simple and cheap and whatever as you possibly can just to get the stuff out there yeah. as quickly as possible with as little money wasted because it's always an experiment, you know, in the, in the beginning, just to see what people are going to like and what price point they're willing to pay and what ingredients they're going to react to. And 
so on and so forth. So, and man, farmers markets are the way to do that testing too, because you know, true to form, they are very vocal shoppers, and they'll let you know exactly what they think about everything that you're doing. And so, it provided a really great testing ground and a direct line to our consumers to iterate from and to, to learn from. Nice. So speaking of which, I was curious, what were those very first products that you took with you to the farmer's market that first time? That's a great question. It was um, actually our two sausages, uh, which we still carry today. It was our uh, chorizo sausage and our Italian sausage. And then the chicken that we offer today was actually the first product that we made, but we didn't take it to the farmer's market right away. We actually introduced that a little bit after because people were looking for a more mild, more versatile product that their entire family and their children would enjoy. Uh, so we ended that up launching that a little little sooner after. Interesting. Okay. And then yeah. from that back and forth, that feedback from the farmer's market, did you find yourself like iterating on recipes or flavor profiles or texture or anything like that? Or did you like have it already nailed based on the feedback? I think we had a really good foothold. I think that there were some things we tweaked, like the spice level on the Italian sausage might have been a little bit hot for some of the palates. Oh, hi, kitty cat. You know, we tweaked in a, a little things, but I think that the texture was was really pretty good for what we were going for. And I think, you know, our brand is a little bit different than, say, the Beyond Meats or the Impossibles, where we're not really trying to emulate a one-to-one -one direct comparison to animal protein. We are trying to emulate a protein experience in the same way that, you know, a hot dog is not trying to be a pork chop, our plant meat is not trying to be animal meat. I think that there's room and that there needs to be space created for additional types of meat and additional interpretations of protein. And so I think coming at it from that angle created a little more acceptance because we were calling it chicken or we're calling it Italian sausage so that people understand the usage. Uh, they understand how to incorporate it in their recipes. They can make that links in their minds of like, oh, this is unfamiliar, but it's chicken. So it's sort of familiar and I kind of get it. And it helps create that bridge of understanding for our consumers who are just, you know, exploring plant-based meats for the first time. But it's not a letdown when they know that it's not 100% chicken because that's not really our goal. They're like, oh, it's not chicken, but I like it. And it's it's not quite Italian sausage, but if you put it in pasta sauce, I would never know. And so that's really kind of the win for us is when people are like, I could eat this. This is different and I like it. And it doesn't have to be exactly something else to still be good. Nice. Yeah. I love that. The way you talk about it like that, that it's just an alternative, not a replacement. Like it's yeah. just another, not, not even alternative. It's like just another protein form, right? Cause I've, yep. I've been a heavy plant-based eater pretty much my entire life. And I've had the experience of introducing hardcore meat eaters to plant-based proteins on many occasion. And some people just like had never tried it and they're like, okay, this will be interesting. And they try it and they're like, oh wow, this is really good. I love it. And some people are like, oh, but it's like fake chicken or it's like fake pork or it's fake beef. And yeah. And as soon as they think of it as like fake version of something else, they're like more likely to be disgusted or off put or whatever, because their brain is expecting a very specific flavor profile, a very specific yeah. taste, a very specific texture, et cetera. And when they don't get that, then they decide this stuff is gross and I don't want it instead of just yeah. seeing it as something else, like a different kind of protein. And that's part of what I like about just like tofu tempeh kind of stuff, for example, is it's not anything like 
some other existing, it's not like trying to be a burger. It's not trying right. to be a, a hot dog or something, right? It's just like a different form. So it's sometimes an easier intro. But anyway. Totally. Yeah, no, there's just so much mental stigma, I think, to to plant-based. And I think that, you know, over the, the course of the development of plant-based foods, there's been a wide variety of quality of the products that are on the market. And so I think that people are, they may have had an experience before that that did fall short um, from what they've had in the past. And so I think it's important to, you know, help them understand the versatility and the application of, of a variety of proteins. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, it's just all more food in different forms, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, why not try it all? Yeah. Also part of your story about going back to upstate New York and Sounds like going on full homestead for the most part, like literally making everything mm-hmm. you growing and, and making everything you needed there. Out of curiosity, how much time did that take to do all that? Because I love the idea personally of having, you know, chickens in the backyard and gardens and all this other kind of stuff. But part of what keeps me from it is that I know I can barely keep houseplants alive, let alone like a full thriving garden and and a bunch of animals and then, you know, making soap and all that kind of stuff. I love the idea, but I tend to just end up working most of the time and then spend the money to buy other people's awesome organic soaps or or high quality organic regenerative, you know, food products or whatever. So just out of curiosity for my own information, what's that kind of lifestyle like? How much time does it consume? It's a time investment, not only in the physical labor. I mean, I have so much respect for people who are really living that lifestyle in a much deeper way than we were. I mean, I think we were still, it was, you know, a mini farm and it was a mini business. You know, we were selling some some of our um, vegetables to local restaurants and we thought it was like, oh, we've started this company. But again, then we really started a company and it's always, you know, your perspective changes uh, as you have <laughs> yeah. new experiences. But, you know, I think so much of it, it's not just the direct labor but it's also the education. There's so much science, there's so much timing. There's just a lot of learning. I mean, we weren't making our own clothes. There there were a lot of things we were still participating in. And it was really the food aspect of things and some of our personal care things that we were trying most to kind of opt out of. But we were keeping restaurant jobs. And the reason that we did that is because we could make a reasonable wage for the lifestyle that we were living, which was a pretty low key lifestyle over just working, you know, three to four days a week. And so that was how we sort of managed it. And then we could have three to four days a week, you know, tending the gardens and making our products. So yeah, we could maintain that for a little while. And then uh, No Evil Foods sort of just uh, took over and uh, we were doing both restaurant and No Evil Foods for a while. And and now our garden is completely non-existent. So, you know, (laughs) that was going to be my next question. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Is now that you've got a bigger business than than the one you were describing before. Are you still able to keep up with it? But uh, it sounds like the answer is no. It is, it's yeah. pretty time consuming, right? And I think that's that's part of where, you know, the product industry was born is because nobody can spend all their time doing, making their own clothes, growing all their own food. And in fact, in old, you know, village times or whatever, we would, one person would grow the squash, another person would grow the leafy vegetables, another person would mm-hmm. make the clothes and so on and so forth. And that's how kind of communities were born or would thrive is everyone was good at something. But nowadays, like we all just sit at our desk jobs or drive around or, you know, whatever it is that we do for a living and we don't have time to do any of that stuff. So we buy that stuff from stores. <laughs> and, yeah. and unfortunately, a lot of the quality, a lot of the ethics, a lot of everything just got destroyed along the process now with fast fashion and mass agriculture and all this other kind of stuff. But that's why I love 
having these conversations with brands that are actually trying to give people an alternative that would go back to kind of homesteading that is more sustainable, that is supporting small businesses that, you know, is trying to pay fair wages or whatever it is that that company stands for. And, and even as a person literally sitting here in a house that's probably too big and uh, podcasts and lights and like all this kind of stuff around me that's not sustainable, I can still participate in sustainable clothing and sustainable food and whatever by like voting with my yeah. dollars, right? So that's a big part of why I do what I do and why I support the companies that I support is because I know I don't have the time to do that, but that's the way I would prefer to live is actually getting good quality stuff that's made in the right ways. Yeah, agree. Cool. So let's jump more into the business now. So I know that you went from the farmer's market to 1 million in revenue uh, along your journey, which I know most small CPG companies die before they hit 1 million in revenue. So what were some of the highlights of that journey for you? You know that for we we were able to scale our company self-funded for those first few years. And I think that that is something that I will be very, very proud of for a long time is that, you know, the company started with $2,500 from myself and $2,500 from my co-founder. We just went in 50-50. That got us all our initial sort of startup costs, the initial ingredients and licenses, you know, establishing our business and paid for the first manufacturing, which was again, done in a shared use kitchen. So, you know, we didn't go to a co-packer. It's literally Mike and myself, the only people in the kitchen, making the product, cooking the product, cooling the product, packaging the product, freezing the product, you know, getting there at five in the morning on a Saturday morning, taking it to the farmer's market, doing all the marketing, building our first websites, like everything was very hands-on and very DIY. And then we're also maintaining are, you know, we're not making money yet. So we are still maintaining our jobs at our restaurants that we were working at on the sides. And so being able to sort of take the money from that small investment, reinvest it into the company, support it enough to keep it going, to slowly start building a team to help us manufacture the product, to slowly start getting those relationships with our retailers and doing that all kind of self-driven and by very organic growth based on pure consumer demand and really being, I think, inspired and motivated by their enthusiasm for our products. I think Mike and I still at that time had very, you know, the plant-based industry hadn't really taken off yet in 2014. I think Beyond Meat was just starting to maybe get into the market or it might have even be a, a little bit pre Beyond Meat. And so this boom that we saw we didn't see coming or the boom that happened, we didn't see coming. And so I think we were still in a little bit of disbelief of like, and our goals still were very small at that time. We really wanted to create this community business and this small scale business. So we still could have the garden on the side and still have that, you know, that self-sufficient life. But we just continued to respond to consumer demand. And one of the really unique things about our scenario and our growth story is that we were selling at the farmer's market in Asheville, North Carolina, which is a very, very heavily touristed in this area. And so we had people coming from all over. And one of the things that visitors like to do is go to the farmer's markets because we have such a strong local product and, and maker community. And so people would come as sort of a, a tourist destination to come to the farmer's markets. And so we would have people that came to the markets and then would go back to wherever they live and start looking for our products in their natural food stores in Maryland, say. 
and they couldn't find us. So then they'd email us and say, Hey, I live in Maryland. I'm really love you know, I was in Asheville. I love your product. Like, do you sell anywhere? So we would be Googling like natural food stores in Baltimore, Maryland, and then just cold call people and say, Hey, we've got customers in your area asking for our product. And before we knew it, we're like FedExing boxes across the country because we didn't have a distribution network set up. And so, I mean, I think all of those early sort of just grit and determination and figuring it out as we go. I'm, I'm so proud of that and that we could have, that we built what we built from that. You know, we don't have business backgrounds. We're not graduates of Yale and Harvard. Like we are just people who had this drive to do something. And I just, I think that that's so amazing that you can put your passion to work in that way. And so, yeah, that's something I'll, I'll always remember. Yeah, that's amazing. I know that there's a lot of different ways to start a business. And sometimes I think to myself, man, I wish I knew everything I knew now when I first started my business. But when I have that conversation with other entrepreneurs, they often say, yeah, but would I have actually started the business (laughs) had I known how much work it was going to be and how hard it was going to be, how many years it was going to take to get to XYZ point or whatever. So I think there is value in some of that naivete, partly because you're going to innovate, you're going to come up with new things. You're not going to give in to some of the, yeah, people don't really like that. So don't even try it kind of mm-hmm. mindset that I think people get in when they're too experienced and they've seen too much data because, you know, times change and sometimes the data is wrong. So like having that, that early, no business experience, no understanding of the industry, sometimes that's where the biggest innovation comes from. But to your point, like growing a business from there can be difficult when you don't have a background in any, any kind of marketing, business management operations, whatever. So there's a lot of lessons learned along the way. In fact, that's part of why we're trying to build this online community, Evolve CPG and podcast is so that the future Sidras out there will at least have a little bit more information (laughs) when they get started than they would have if they'd started with no resources, no community, et cetera. So, So definitely it's interesting in those early stages, but you survived. You survived those stages. A lot of people ended up closing the doors. And, mm-hmm. you know, some of that survival is probably attributed to your kind of scrappy bootstrap. Because I think the smaller companies who act like they're big companies can run out of cash real quick. And I think mm-hmm. that's maybe actually back to my point of like sometimes when actual business people come into the industry who've maybe worked at Kellogg's or something like that, they only know how to run a giant brand, they don't know how to mm-hmm. bootstrap and be scrappy as much, you know? So anyway, pros and cons on both sides, but sometimes yeah, I and think we've, that we've experienced both really sides helps. too. Yeah. I think that we've experienced both sides in our growth, both, both the scrappy bootstrapped and then also sort of punching above our weight and growing too quickly. And, you know, I think for a long time, my answer to the question of like, what would you do differently if you could do it again? It was, you know, take on more investment sooner, grow faster. I don't know that that would be my, my answer anymore. I think that, you know, time and perspective, you know, changes things. And so, you know, I might have a different answer to that today than, than I did, you know, three years ago when I was asked that question. Yeah. A lot of advice I do hear from other entrepreneurs is around funding. <laughs> like mm-hmm. you need so much cash to run these businesses, but to your point, what kind of funding, right? Because if you take on Mm -hmm. investors too early and they get to tell you what you should and shouldn't be doing, then your dream might get squashed or they might point you in the wrong direction or something like that. So having money that you don't answer to anybody for for a long time so you can like try some things out and be bold and be brave and 
create your own vision is helpful, but money does seem to be very important when scaling these companies. So mm-hmm. that's one thing I hear over and over is like the amount of money that you need to run slash grow some of these businesses. But I'd also agree on like the maybe like at some stage you think the advice would be grow faster, but almost most of the people I hear that grew fast end up failing pretty fast too. Just just because you scale inefficiencies, you spit mm-hmm. scale you know broken systems. You're focused and so on growth so instead of focused on stability and sustainability, and I think that that's that's one of the learnings that we had for sure. Is we were we were building for growth, but you know our margins weren't quite right yet, and so you know we hit some bumps. Yeah. I feel like maybe the best balance and who knows how you pull it off exactly, but it's, it's well-funded, but slow and steady (laughs) in the Mm -hmm. early stages until you work out all the kinks and then you'll, you'll know the time when it's, when it's time to go big. But anyway, so thanks for sharing some of that backstory. So I know that not every company that gets started controls their own manufacturing. A lot of people just go straight to a co-manufacturer. They private label something or whatever else. But you've controlled manufacturing for a long time, right? You kind of had to scale that side of the business while you were scaling the marketing and other things. So can you talk about some of the benefits and or struggles of scaling your own manufacturing? Yeah. I mean, when we started in 2014, um, there weren't many options for a product like ours because, first of all, we're, we're a very kitchen oriented product. And we were cooking in a very batch method um, process. So we weren't, it wasn't a continuous flow, you know, we weren't working on a conveyor system, everything was sort of one step, complete one step, you move on to the next step, you push it from one place to the next place, you push it somewhere else. It's very hands on lots of touches. But we were also combining manufacturing technology and equipment from various industries. So we might have been pulling pieces from the baking industry, we might have been pulling some equipment from the meat manufacturing industry, we might have been pulling something from, you know, somewhere else. So we're, we're actually combining a layout of equipment that your typical co-manufacturer wouldn't have all of the pieces for. So they might have 40 to 50%, maybe 60 to 70 if you were lucky, but the manufacturing opportunities for plant-based products were very, very limited in 2014. There's still a scarcity in plant-based manufacturing now in 2022. And so there weren't really any options for us to, to marry that uh, combination of equipment. Because we had a resource in our local community called Blue Ridge Food Ventures, where we could get in, get our foot in the door with many of the equipment pieces, small scale versions of them, but many of those pieces of equipment in place, we were able to utilize that manufacturing space and pay for it sort of as we needed it. So we could scale our manufacturing as we grew because it was a pay by the hour structure. The more hours that we used, the lower our hourly rate was. So it really did enable us to sort of trial, you know, the product market fit for our brand for a good amount of time and, you know, develop ways of maximizing that efficiency within that eight, 900 square foot space, bringing on more team training team, really working out a lot of that. But we got to a point in 2017, where we went to our our big first natural products trade show, uh, natural products expo East, and we ended up winning a big prominent industry award called a nexty, which we won for our our packaging, Uh, we got it for best new packaging innovation. And that was really a springboard for demand for 
our product. Um, from that point on, we acquired national distribution. We acquired a national broker relationship. We went global, like you know, across the country with Whole Foods. And at that point, we really had far more demand than we had capacity for in our small kind of shared use kitchen. And you know, we basically were renting out all the available space, multiple shifts a day, and you know, the, the local caterers couldn't get you know couldn't get in, and we really needed to move on. And so you know, we manufacturing in a co-manufactured environment wasn't an option for us at that point. So we decided that we knew how to make the product. We enjoyed making the product and we wanted to make sure that the quality of the product maintained, you know, our high standards. And so we took out um, investment to build our own manufacturing plant. And so, yeah, we opened up a 20,000 square foot manufacturing plant in Weaverville, North Carolina in 2019. Ooh, right. The year of COVID, but right before COVID. So that'll be mm -hmm. interesting as we develop the story. <laughs> yes, the that plot one, thickens. Hey, y'all. We're going to take a quick break to let you know about a new podcast called Climify for designers, educators, and sustainability geeks. Host and design educator Eric Benson interviews acclaimed climate scientists and sustainability experts to find out how designers can help combat the climate crisis in their college classrooms. The discussions on this program are geared to help you climify your syllabi to assign projects that not only teach design fundamentals, but also can have a positive impact on our climate. You can find Climify on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to join the conversation and become a climate designer, you can follow the show on Instagram at Climify Podcast or head over to our great teaching resources at climatedesigners.org slash edu. All right, now let's get back to our conversation. Along your journey, you've kind of had some struggles with labor. I mean, all companies struggle with labor in one way or another. It's hard to find. It's too expensive or, mm -hmm. or in some cases like unionizing or, you know, whatever else. So can you talk a little bit about some of the kind of labor struggles you went through, like through this process? Yeah. So one of the things I didn't mention this earlier, but one of the other motivators for us to have our own manufacturing was actually building community around our company and building a company culture. I think that that was important to us to not just be a brand that sells a product, but also be a brand that has impact beyond the product that we sell. And so through you know managing our own team and, and fostering that environment, we were able to do a number of things that we would have had a more challenging time, if not an impossible time, implementing in a co-manufactured environment. So some of those things were like equitable parental leave. Whether you were the birthing parent or you weren't, you still got the same parental you know, leave policy. Um, we became living wage certified in 2017, I believe, and we're paying above the minimum, the living wage for our area, our geographic area. We, let's see, started offering health benefits. And this was, some of these things were based on asks from our team. They said, hey, like, we would really love to have health benefits. And we said, okay, like, let's figure out a way to do that. So there was a lot of back and forth between our team, really trying to create a culture where, you know, if they needed something, we were there and we were responsive. We, let's see, we're, you know, paying, um, Part-time team members offering paid time off for part-time team members as well. That's on a accrual basis, as well as full-time members. We were a certified fair chance company, so offering employment opportunities to folks who've been involved in the criminal justice system. Um, that you know helps 
create a lot of opportunities for marginalized people, for people who you know otherwise might not have a second chance. So a lot of these things that were really important to us as people, we were trying to implement into our business. At some point in that process, you know, we thought we were building this company that had this culture. We actually won an award in 2020 or 2021. I can't remember now. It's late 2020 as the best startup to work for in our area uh, because of, you know, the culture that we built. But despite all of that, our team did have interest in forming a union. And I think that what we learned throughout this process or actually after the process was that what they were trying to do and what we were trying to do was actually the same thing, which was sort of safeguard the good things about our company. You know, we found one of our former employees at a podcast, she actually mentioned that she loved working here. She loved the benefits, the job security uh, was really the thing that she was looking for and that she wanted a career with our company. And so she was really looking to safeguard all of the good things about Noible Foods through a union contract. And, you know, that's, that's challenging because when that happens, there's a lot of legal and sort of bureaucratic red tape that automatically puts up walls between you and your team. And that direct kind of dialogue that you had with people where they know you and they said, hey, we need health insurance. And we said, cool, we'll get you health insurance. Like that all starts to erode around you. In addition to that, you know, we had a very, we're a very small company and we were trying to get a fairly substantial investment in a new manufacturing facility off the ground. You know, they're trying to scale up into this new space, which had a lot more overhead than when, when we previously had. We were still not profitable by a, quite a long shot. We had a cash burn of, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars every month um, as we were trying to scale up and ramp into this manufacturing. Our team grew from about 16 to 60 overnight, just this rapid kind of critical point of growth and change for our company. And, you know, at the same time, we're we're gearing up to raise more money and investors and some of our board members are saying to us, you know, we've, we've never seen a company with a union raise VC capital. And that was really scary for us to hear, being people that were not seasoned entrepreneurs. Um, these are the experts that we have in the room to learn from and to take guidance from. And so, you know, we did hold meetings to not discourage, I mean, from our perspective at the time, and, and we have learned a lot about this movement and a lot about how, you know, power structures and imbalance are at play in these situations that we weren't really keyed into at the time. And it sounds naive, but it's very true. But we, you know, held meetings from our perspective to educate and help kind of share the pros and cons of what unionization might mean for our company at this stage of our growth. Later, we learned that that's, you know, termed union busting, and it's really frowned upon. And we we just didn't know. And it's, you know, it's kind of crazy to look back on now. But ultimately, the union was voted down by a three to one margin. And, you know, so very, voted very overwhelming. By the employees, right? By the employees. You know, some would argue that that was because of our involvement or our intervention. We were also responding in that moment to a lot of our team members who had been previously involved in unions in the past and said, you know what, I've been in one before. I don't like it. I never want to be in one again. I don't see the need for it here. When I need something, I go to you, you give it to me. And so, you know, who's to say whether or not the vote would have ended up the same. I think likely it would have based on the culture that we had established. Maybe the margin wouldn't have been so large 
you know, such a devastating loss for the union had we not sort of done what we did, but we did. And, you know, we've gotten a lot of negative attention for that move, not necessarily unwarranted. You know, we were within our legal rights to hold the meetings, but I understand now that those power structures aren't set up to benefit the employees. And so, you know, there's, again, like so much learning and time and perspective changes, you know, how you react to things, how you understand things, um, how you can see things from someone else's perspective. And even though we thought we were creating a, not a level playing field, because obviously we're the employer, um, but a yeah transparent or an open atmosphere from someone else who maybe just wasn't raised with, you know, communicating with authority in that way, it might still be very uncomfortable for them to come into my office and ask me for something, even though it's totally normal for me, it might not be what they're comfortable with. And so, you know, just being able to see from somebody else's perspective, a different way, and also now understanding kind of how all of those pieces interplay, how they impact marginalized work, all sorts of things that we were already trying to do through so many of our other policies, they were incongruous. But again, you know, you've got your financial partners and your board in your room saying one thing, and you've got to act sort of, you got to toe the line. And, and you know, it's, it was not easy. Yeah, absolutely. That's a lot to try to have to deal with at once, right? Like yeah. s- expanding operations, team growing, company culture, equipment, getting financing, you know, trying to become profitable, like so many things to deal with at the same time in general. And then to add like, okay, now we've got to deal with this labor union stuff and then going back and forth hearing from investors whether or not that's going to work out, et cetera. That's, that's just so much to deal with. And I think that's the thing with being an entrepreneur is you're constantly dealing with all the things and trying to protect the team from having to deal with all the things so that their minds don't explode. But then at the same time, it's hard for your team to understand all the things that you're doing to just try to keep this company running, right? So it's like Exactly. This, and again, um, it's perspective can, both ways. And yeah. Yeah. And it's so hard. Yeah. I, I, and I do some of the same things with like employees voting for benefits. And I'm always trying to remind people that like you can come to me with anything. But at the same time, I know for some people coming to your boss with a issue or problem or whatever is not going to be comfortable. So like Mm -hmm. it's hard to really build some of these cultures and make sure that they're kind of staying in place with each new team member that comes on and so on and so forth. So I feel you in all those regards. With that said, just out of curiosity, I have never worked in a union company or been part of a union or anything like that. Is there like a specific size of company that like you just crossed a threshold and then all of a sudden it made it possible or more desirable to have a have a union for example if you were still that like 16 person size team would this have ever happened the whole union struggle thing i've also never worked at a unionized workplace from what i've learned it is very unique to have a company the size that we were at the time um, with a team that sought unionization there is an actual like magic number that a voting employee, a voting eligible employee can be to, you need to have like, I think at least 30 people to petition for a union. So, I mean, we were 50% bigger than the the smallest that you could be, but, you know, being as early as we were in our growth, it was very unique. And I think too, that there's, you know, there's not always, but there's a very prevalent sort of narrative that people are unionizing for better wages, they're unionizing for better benefits, they're unionizing because they feel exploited. The people who were seeking this in our workplace 
weren't doing it for those reasons necessarily. You know, they've, they've said that it's the first time that they've been employed without having to live paycheck to paycheck by working for our company. So it wasn't because they were dissatisfied necessarily with our company or with our you know benefits and other perks. It was more so because they wanted to safeguard those things for the long term and felt that the contract was the best way to do that. I mean, you know, to their benefit, I guess, they were seeing the company change. We were going through a lot of big leaps and bounds of growth. We were expanding into new channels. We were selling to Walmart for the first time, where some of them philosophically didn't think that was the right choice for our company. We saw that as an accessibility issue, where you know most people live closer to Walmart than they do to a Whole Foods. And so for that large percentage of America, we wanted to provide our food as an option to those people, myself included, who lives closer to Walmart than I do to Whole Foods. So we saw that as a you know kind of accessibility issue. They saw that with sort of partnering with the devil. And so you know you've got our team who's many manufacturing the product who very well may be happy for you know the wages and benefits they're receiving but philosophically think that we should only sell to co-ops that's not really in line with the growth trajectory of our company to only sell to a natural products retailer and try to you know grow to the levels that we you know think is worthy of our the impact that we can achieve and so i think some of those sort of incongruencies were at play with the desire to get the union contract if that makes sense yeah, that makes total sense. Like they were saying all these changes happening just as much as you were trying to manage all these yeah. changes. So if they're like, oh, crap, what happens if this company gets big all of a sudden and then and yeah. then this dream job that we have is all of a sudden not dream job and then I got to go find some other place to work or something. So exactly. I can understand it, you know, from that perspective that they're like, hey, if we do this, we can lock in some of these awesome policies but of course, like me being a business geek, I'm like, well, couldn't they have come up with some other proposals and said, hey, boss, <laughs> right. we love what you're doing, but like maybe we could get some profit sharing. Maybe we could get like yeah. employee votes on we policies. Would have much maybe we that. could get, you know, <laughs> employee ownership or something like New Belgium, yeah. another company that's also based out of Asheville now. I, I went to yeah. school in Fort Collins where they're originally based. So I still know them as a Fort Collins company, but I know right. <laughs> they've got a cool facility there as well in Nashville. But anyway, so many different paths forward. But I also know that's me as a business geek who loves geeking out on business models and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Whereas employees, maybe their first thought is like union or something like that. And maybe it seemed like a good idea when they started it. And then the more the ball started rolling, it wasn't as good of an idea. And that's why it got voted down. But who yeah. knows? Long story short, yeah, it's a a lot to go through all at once. So I'm curious, in the end, though, with the funding situation, you were saying some of your investor advisors or whatever were saying they'd never seen a union company get VC capital. What ended up happening with that fundraise at that time? Well, I mean, we ended up not having the union. We were able to bring in the capital that we needed at that time. But the negative PR fallout from, you know, what we later found, you know, to be union busting or or perceived as such was really devastating for the brand. It had, because we have so many progressive attributes and values, because it was the union busting, so to speak, was so far from the progressive values that we hold, it became very sensationalized in the media. And so it did pick up a fair amount of traction. And that has, you know, it's caused us some issues. And so I think it's actually, you know, sadly ironic that the job that folks were really, you know, enjoying and wanting to protect 
ultimately got really, really harmed through their act of trying to protect the job. And, you know, it resulted in us having to close our manufacturing, not directly the union. Um, and I don't want to make, I want to make, be very clear that we don't conflate those two things. It wasn't the, the union, you know, election that caused the manufacturing closure, but it was a lot of kind of events happening simultaneously. It was scaling up into our manufacturing facility at the, you know, that's the second half of 2019, rolling into COVID in 2020 with the union election in February of 2020, just as COVID was about to hit. That kind of snowballed right into, you know, lower revenues because we didn't have channels developed that we were planning on. So we had planning planned on a big food service play in 2020, which obviously didn't happen. So we had revenue that we were anticipating from from that that was no longer an option. Our retailers were no longer doing their review cycles. So some of the products that we were planning to sell into new markets or new products that we were attempting to bring to market were no longer brought to market. So again, lost revenue. The existing brand or the existing retailers that we had in the market at that time, we couldn't support them effectively because our field marketing, taste testing, demoing opportunities, those had all gone away during COVID. And so a lot of our revenue dissipated. We went out and were trying to raise more capital at the end of 2020 and were in deep, deep discussions with strategic investor and took about six months to go through the due diligence process with these folks, had a cash component tied up to that sort of to bridge us to the final combination of the investment. When that investment didn't end up going forward, $2 million dropped basically out of us or out of our grasp overnight. That happened on a Monday. We at that point had about $30,000 in the bank, which was not enough to make our next payroll. And so we had to make a really quick, devastating, heartbreaking decision to shutter our manufacturing plants that Friday because we didn't want to get into a situation where we couldn't pay the team that we had on, on hand. And it was a life-preserving move. It was a very drastic life preserving move. In hindsight, we should have had contingency plans in place for uh, you know this due diligence process because you never know whether or not they're going to move forward until you know the ink has dried. Don't ever bank on anything. It was you know after six months of due diligence, you're feeling pretty confident, and then at the last minute, something just didn't line up, and it just really crushed us. And you were saying you should have, could have, would have, kind of, you know, whatever yeah. kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, we all should have seen COVID coming, or we all should have <laughs> right. had tons of cash had in a our pile of know, back pocket. Yeah. We should have, you know, been ready to sell something else or whatever. But I mean, that's that's the thing. Like I said before, like that's part of what I love about being an entrepreneur, but it's also part of what's stressful about it is you literally never know. Each quarter, each year is kind of a different challenge. Like each yeah. scale that you're building towards is a different challenge. Every so often when you're entering in different markets or services or, you know, products or whatever, that's a whole different challenge. Like you could have done everything right for 90% of the time. And then you launch one new product that like got some contamination from your lettuce supplier or something that has no fault of your own, but all of a sudden now you got to recall these products and your brand gets a hit. You know, like there's all these things that you just can't plan for. And it's crazy how the world works. It's frustrating and Mm -hmm. scary and exhausting. But it also keeps it interesting because you always got something new to learn. And now you've gone through some of these various experiences with funding falling apart or manufacturing yeah. closing or labor union chats that just gives you that much more knowledge and experience to share with others now so that maybe from some other people can be a little bit better prepared by hearing your story or the, so that 
with your current venture or future adventures, you're more prepared for things. But, you know, the next thing that comes around is probably going to be unlike anything else that we saw. <laughs> so we'll see how this inflation goes, for example. Right. The thing that I found very interesting during this whole process is that it took us a long time to sort of be okay with what happened. There was a period of time where we really wanted to just not save face, but put on a a good face and sort of just say, everything's fine. Like, we're just going to keep going forward. Everything's great. And not really admit how hard this was on everybody. It was, you know, we had to lay off our team. Like, it was really, really hard. From so many different angles, we were getting, you know, personally sort of attacked online, um, turned into memes, like it just, just all of it was like really messy. And I think that there's the propensity to get on LinkedIn or wherever and just talk about all your wins. And I think that it took a period of us to sort of mourn all of that, I think, for a little while and get past it to sort of be like, okay, this happened. We're going to talk about it now. We're going to learn from it. We're going to move forward. But as we started having these conversations about not only the union, but our financial challenges, um, because no one wants to say like we ran out of money, like no one wants to stand up in front of your network or your customers and say like we are, you know, weeks away from shutting our doors because we don't have any capital left. Like that's not a happy thing to have to say or to share to anyone. But the more that we became okay with like, all right, this is our truth. This is the real deal about what's happening. And we started having those conversations. People started opening up to us and saying, you know what, we've been there. This happened to us. We had this situation one time with this person who did this crazy thing. And, you know, people became a lot more transparent, a lot more real. And I think that that that's one of the things I'm super grateful for during this process is not just what I've learned from it, but it's also the ability to connect with other CEOs, other founders, other business people who've been through the shit and seen all of it. And they're just like, you know what, you may or may not get past this, but you will be so much stronger for it. And you're not alone. And I think that that, you know, that's been really, really key to us being able to continue to put one step in front of your, you know, one foot in front of the other. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's part of why I often just like by default lean towards being as transparent as possible, whether it's with my team or colleagues or clients or anything like that is just the more open and honest you can be, the more you'll receive that back. And then we can start having real conversations instead of just comparing our TikTok numbers or or something like that, right? This highlight reel that's like a fake version of us out online. It's like, let's talk about the real stuff. Let's (laughs) talk about the struggles. And that way we can feel not alone, but we can also help each other. For sure. It's hard though, because I mean, I think that there's the idea that you need to be the strong, fearless leader. And that if you show that vulnerability or you show, you know, wavering and like, I know exactly what to do, like, this is the path, I'm so sure, you know, if you show indecision or you show weakness, so to speak, or just that vulnerability, you know, I think that that's really scary, I think, for entrepreneurs and for leaders, because we're supposed to know what to do. And we've got a team that's looking at us, expecting us to know what to do. And even if it's the truth of like, I don't know what to do right here. There's the fear of like, okay, our entire team's going to walk on us because they see now that we're in this difficult city. So it's, you know, I'm not advocating for sure of, you know, putting on a brave face, but I think that it's it's really hard to be that transparent. Um, I've gotten a lot better at it through this experience, but it's still a work in progress, I think. And I think it is for a lot of leaders to be that transparent and to be that open. Yeah, I mean, it goes against a lot of 
American culture, maybe it's not just American mm-hmm. culture, but definitely business culture. And it's almost like this toxic masculinity that bled right. into corporate culture where everyone just has to be this hotshot that knows exactly what they're doing, can never admit they, to anything otherwise. And even if they're making a big failure, just spin it into something good, right? But I think in today's society of the internet and people are going to find stuff out anyway, consumers and employees and everyone are starting to just celebrate a little bit of vulnerability and transparency Mm -hmm. and saying, you know what, we screwed this up. It didn't work out, but here's what we're going to change. Here's how we're going to fix it. Here's what we're still all about. We're moving forward. Like even big companies like Patagonia all the time, just admit like, Hey, our supply chain sucks in this area. Here's where it's terrible. Here's what we're trying to solve, but we don't have an answer right now and we're going to keep working on it. You know? So I think the more we can, as companies and as leaders, lean into some of that vulnerability in just kind of a authentic way. And obviously, there's a time and a place and a way you say it and, and who you say it to at what stages and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. So there's still some sort of strategy to it. But leaning into some of that vulnerability, I think, hopefully, will make our employees like working with us more and trust more that they can come to us with issues, <laughs> but also help our investors know that we're telling the truth when we tell them we're going to be able to do X, Y, Z. And and our customers know that like we'll make mistakes occasionally, but we're going to fix it and we're going to keep moving on. You know, I think it just builds a lot of trust all over and helps encourage more authenticity and more vulnerability from others. Yeah. Well said. So with that said, maybe we flip it a little to the positive side and talk about your rebrand. I know you just kind of refreshed uh, the look and feel. You got new packaging. so. Tell us a little more about what's kind of going on right now and your vision for the future. Yeah, I'm happy to switch gears a little bit. We did just launch new packaging and a new product in April. The packaging is really exciting. And it was actually um, one of the positive outcomes of that due diligence process with that one particular partner that didn't pan out was, you know, really digging into our sales and marketing strategy and um, really kind of taking a a harder look at that than we had ever done in the past and tightening it up in ways that we had never done in the past. And so one of the things that we realized is that our packaging really needed to get changed in order for us to reach our next kind of plateau of growth or our next stage of growth because our growth had somewhat plateaued. Um, I think our packaging that was the next year award-winning packaging was very, people loved it. It was very beloved by a lot of people. Buyers thought it was so cute and quaint um, and artisanal. But it also, I think, was limited in its ability to really drive purchase at the the shelf, particularly during COVID when we saw shopping behavior change dramatically. People are not going into grocery stores and sort of browsing the aisles. They're not picking up your packaging and engaging with it and turning it over in the way that our previous packaging really required someone to do to understand what it was. They're going in for much quicker trips to the store with exactly what they need on their mind. And if something doesn't reach out and grab them, they're not going to get anything that's not on their list. Uh, They're also doing a lot more shopping digitally, online, Instacart, those sorts of things. And our packaging just didn't, it wasn't eye-catching enough in a digital format. So we rebranded, we redesigned, we brought food photography to our packaging for the first time ever, which has always been a strength for us in our, you know, our social media, our website. We've always had a lot of fun making very enticing and appetizing photography, but we never put it on our packaging before. And so now it's on our packaging front and center. It's like visual proof of taste and texture, as well as usage occasion, helping again to close those 
kind of gaps between what is it? How do I use it? How do I see myself enjoying this product? We elevated our nutritional and ingredient differentiators. So the fact that we're a complete protein, that we're not using isolated proteins that are, you know, heavily processed in a lot of cases, that we're, you know, high in fiber, that we're a plastic negative certified brand, bringing all of that kind of front and center. And we increased our dimensions of our packaging too, which seems sort of counterintuitive from a sustainability standpoint. We also changed from a biodegradable craft paper carton board to a sustainable forestry initiative certified paper board. And I resisted that change for quite some time because I thought in my mind, like this is going to be less sustainable. We actually ran a life cycle analysis and found out that the transition from the craft paper board to the sustainable forestry initiative paper board reduced our greenhouse gas emissions, our human health burden, and our environmental toxicity by more than 80% over our previous packaging. We also moved to a print manufacturer that's 100% renewable energy. So we really like went heavy and we increased the dimensions so people can see it on the shelf now. It's competitive with the other products in our shelf space, but we did it in a way that's what's more sustainable than we ever have been before. How much did you increase the package? Because I also know, I think it's like if your package increases by like 20% or more, you got to get new UPCs and then that's a whole thing with retailers and so on and so forth. That is a whole thing with retailers. We did not change our UPCs. We were just like at the cusp of the threshold. So we we just well played. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. That's cool. Awesome. Okay. So I know we've been chatting for a while and should probably wrap up. So how about we wrap up with what is your top piece of advice or a couple if you if you need for other entrepreneurs? Mm, gosh, I've got so many, so many, so many. Gosh, top piece of advice, that stuff. I mean, one of the things that I always try to, it's not really advice, it's more of a philosophy. And it's something that's really gotten me through some of these more challenging periods of transition is just sort of this repetitive phrase that I, I keep in my head. And it's, um, it won't always be like this. And I think that that one is is really good because it can be used in both the hard and trying times, as well as in the moments of triumph. You know, when you have a big win, you get a great account, like celebrate that win, celebrate that account, be present, take a moment to like slow down your busy day to like revel in that, you know, go down a shot with your co-founder, whatever you got to do, but like celebrate that. But also because, it, you know, that good feeling, it's going to be gone <laughs> in seconds. And then like, you know, some bad news is going to come. That's just the way it works. It's all a roller coaster. But then when that bad news comes, also remind yourself that it won't always be like this. Like this moment will pass. This, you know, this opportunity will come around again. Maybe it'll look a little bit differently. Maybe it was never meant for you in the first place. And so that's just something that, you know, really has been sort of a repetitive phrase that I just keep in my mind. And I think that, you know, knowing that, you can write your own story, I think is really important. I think that, you know, you can't go back and change anything that happened. The past is the past. Choices were made, decisions were made, things happened, but you can always choose to start where you are and change the way that things end or change the way that you act tomorrow. And every day is a new opportunity. I mean, just like your eating choices and your choice to eat less animal products, whatever that might be, every day is a new opportunity to make a different choice, a better choice. And I think that just making sure that, you know, don't be defined by what you've done, be defined by how you act every moment forward. And uh, that's something we try to do every day. Nice. Yeah, that's beautiful. I use that. uh, I won't always be like this one 
quite a bit myself, but I, I, I say like this, this too shall pass is my, mm. is my version of it, but it's the, totally yeah. the same thing, both the positive upside of things, like reminding yourself, this is awesome, we should lean into it right now, but also like there are going to be tough times ahead still. It's not like yeah. we're permanently on this yay kind of mountaintop here. Um, but yeah. then also it helps you kind of realize that when times are tough and you're working yourself to the bone or going through some particular struggles, like know that it will kind of pass as well and that you'll you'll come out the other side. It's probably a stronger person for it. So just keep moving forward and and try not to get too attached to any specific situation or, or outcome and, and just keep moving on, go along with the journey. So anyway, I love those uh, bits of advice. So. Thanks for sharing that. Thanks for kind of coming on here and, and being vulnerable with me and, and sharing your story and, and telling us about all the kind of great journey and process that you've gone on with your business, which I hope will help other people listening in on this that are on their own journey of whether they're trying to manufacture, scale, fundraise, anything. There are so many awesome tidbits of information, advice, backstory in here. So Thanks for sharing all that. And thanks for carving out some time to chat. And I'm looking forward to kind of watching where you go next. Of course. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was really nice. It actually felt really good to sort of just be real and, you know, share our, our story and our struggle. And um, if there are any entrepreneurs or startup founders out there listening, I'm available. Find me on LinkedIn, send me a message. I'm happy to share my experience if it's helpful to you as well. Yeah, that's great. Maybe we'll find a way to get you in the Evolve CPG community for some Q&A or something sometime as well. But uh, that's great. So thanks again for your time and appreciate it. And good chat and we'll talk more soon. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Sedra or No Evil Foods, visit noevilfoods.com. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, leave a heart, thumbs up, or review and share it with your colleagues. As an ever-evolving show, we also love feedback, so send us your thoughts or ideas for who we should talk to next to evolve at modernspecies.com.